Hello everyone, this is Arian there, welcome back to the podcast, stoked you're here today. I've got an episode that's so fucking awesome, I'm so excited to share it with you. This is a talk with Jordan Hall. Jordan is a person that I have been listening very intently to and reading his writing of for the last likely three years or so. Um, he's a thinker, and he is painfully articulate and very handsome. We talk about parenting. We talk about our energetic fingerprint that we leave everywhere we go. We talk about the collective intelligence of competition paragliding, which is really super interesting, and so much more. I don't want to preface this too much, but I do need to tell you because we recorded um, some 40 minutes into our conversation. So the one thing that we laid out before we started recording was the concept of Pono, which is a Hawaiian word that means righteousness. It means right action. And in this conversation, we use it as such. We use it as being in right relationship to the sacred. It is like right action. It is like the right thing. The mm, It is that thing. It's the Tao. It's the thing. Okay, so without further ado, here's a little music and my conversation with Jordan Hall. Also, remember, if you want to support this show, please consider becoming a patron on Patreon for as little as $5 a month. Thank you. Love you. Here we go. Options are leave meeting and got it. <laughs> um, the reason I want to record then is because I feel like we um, have kind of found ourselves to a point that I was hoping to talk to you about, and I think that would be very helpful. Which is that I live here in this beautiful neighborhood. I live in my best friend's house. He lives across the street. He has two children. One is just about to turn three and one is just a couple months old. Our other best friends live across the yard. The neighborhood, the neighborhood has no fences and just has common area and grass between all the houses. It's very beautiful. Um, their child is about to be five and the other is just turned two. They're both boys. Our friends are professional acrobats. They're acro yoga instructors and adventure racers. Um, and I am wild uncle larry so 
I've always had a special connection to children because I find myself to be mostly a child in my demeanor that I want to play. And I essentially only do what I find fun um, and wrestling and roughhousing is totally my jam. Um, and so I find myself around children a lot lately and their parents. And um, I've been studying nonviolent communication and mm -hmm. have had just an incredible rewiring of my uh, a reimagination of who I am and how I think of myself and how I talk to myself and how I talk to other people. And the, my experience of, of realizing how incredibly important and the, the trajectory of the world, I feel the trajectory of the world in my interaction with the children. I feel like there's such a, there's, it's so important. There's like, I can imagine in each exchange that I could foster their well being or create their future neuroses, mm. right? In any experience, because as I've looked at my own life and the things that I need to like heal from, so many of them came from when I was a, brother and a son and nonviolent communication is so incredibly obvious with children. Like when you speak to a child like that, there's no like preconceived, they don't have like preconceived notions of how I should communicate with them. There's no, Hey, I have this new way of communicating. Can I try it with you? You know, it's just like, you know, I'm like, oh, Ella, look, there's such a beautiful spider on you. Big daddy long legs. She's like, oh, no, ah, get it off. And I'm like, are you feeling scared because you have a need for physical safety? She's like, yeah, I want to feel safe. I'm like, okay, let's get it off. Get it off. Okay. You know, I don't have to like, I don't have to tell her to not cry. I don't have to educate her. I don't have to any of that. It's just like, she has the experience. We acknowledge it. It just like goes right through her. And so I guess of the fractal that is Pono, that is right action, what are the ways that you have seen the most leverage and the most import and the things that you think are important in parenting or interaction with children at large that foster this move. I know a lot of this conversation of how to change the world is a, is a, is a longer conversation. It's a multi-generational thing. So what are these things that you've acknowledged in your own parenting or in your own childhood or how you were raised that you think are important and should be mm. noted? So um, we could start with nonviolent communication um, as an example. Mm -hmm. So there's a, 
Hmm. You earlier were talking about something like a like not maybe you didn't say bifurcation, but something like that, like something two. There's there's a duality. There's some sort of thing happening present, hmm. moment to moment, and nonviolent communication, for example, has a very nice <clears throat> uh, brings certain things into into relief because it simultaneously can be very much in the direction of Pono. And it can also be very much not, even though one might superficially perceive it to be identical in two examples. So let's say we have two practitioners, practitioner one and practitioner two. Practitioner one is speaking and saying exactly the same words as practitioner two. Like we might even have them be identical words. And they even sound, for the most part, identical in tone. The difference is practitioner two is grounded, is coming from, and is fully connected, and that the expression of nonviolent communication is a syntax and a language, a vocabulary that is supportive of that which is endeavoring to express itself anyway. And the visual image I have right now is something like if I have a, you know, if you see a waveform, like if you're speaking, mm -hmm. <clears throat> and you can imagine one that's very that and you can imagine one that has like jiggity jaggedies on it mm -hmm. and that which is um unclear in self <sighs> will embed itself in the in the expression no matter the form mm -hmm. so if you work really hard from the uh, from the outside in to create a form without actually working from the inside mm -hmm. out to clarify the self then that just finds its way to be insidiously embedded mm -hmm. in the syntax. Uh, and I think this is very, very commonplace. Right? The, the notion or conception of, say, spiritual bypass mm -hmm. is a similar notion. Mm -hmm. um, first, this is like a delineation between a real embodiment and just merely using a tool to communicate in a pleasant way. Yes, exactly. Which and, I would also say that using the tool to communicate in a pleasant way is better. Like it's, it's some step along the path, but it's not the, it's not the end goal. It's not the whole inch. Well, it can be, it can be very helpful and it can also be very troubling um, because it might form a training gym for aspects of self that ultimately need to be it, it is pono for them to be resi resolved but training jim for them to find more subtle ways to uh let's just say it hide for example mm -hmm. so to use a metaphor of uh, the well-polished ego and there's a, a a right relationship with ego and then there's a relationship where ego finds a way to become ever more mm, difficult to actually perceive, mm -hmm. but nonetheless, truly deeply agentic, intermediating mm -hmm. self's relationship with world. Mm -hmm. So there's, um, therein lies the challenge, right? Mm -hmm. Every, every, every practice, every tool, um, if one takes it from the point of view of the thing itself, mm -hmm. then it becomes a tool that can train the aspects of self that are truly still separating to become more sophisticated and more mm -hmm. 
all kinds of good words, tricky. Yeah, hidden. Cunning. Yeah, yeah, hidden. It's a way to it's a way to learn how to be polite enough to cloak the ego. Yeah. Some powerful ones, right? Like soft eyes or mm-hmm. um, you know, like a somatic softening, like all these things. You can grasp them as tools and you can you, know, you can ape the tool mm-hmm. without actually truly grounding in the thing. And you know, the path is always one of is always this, right? So then looping me even more deeply. Yes, that is the path. So the change the world story is always already in every moment. At the end of the day. And children are, in fact, the perfect teachers. You know, if you're, if there are aspects of yourself, which there will be, um, that are unresolved, that are have a noise to them, just to use that as a metaphor, that waveform, all those little ripples are perceived. Right? And the child more than most. Right? So they receive the whole expression. Mm-hmm. And they receive the, the domination, the fear, the tyranny, the confusion, mm-hmm. the sarcasm, the um, felt sense of like, the whole of self is expressing itself. You can't help mm-hmm. it. It always is. It's always encoded mm-hmm. in every expression to some degree. And the child is receiving the whole of it and they're absorbing the whole of it. And then they're doing what they can with the degree of discernment that they have available, which grows over time, hopefully. Um but there it is. Mm-hmm. So learning how to truly be gentle, to mm-hmm. be gentle, to come from a place of deep humility, um, to feel simplicity, so as to have within the own, within your own capacity to have responsibility for what it is that you are actually bringing across the boundary of the relationship. Yeah. I think of the delineation between being loving and doing the things that look like being loving. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And then we can put somewhere on that page, um, making mistakes. Mm Mm-hmm. And responding to how one makes mistakes. So you've got these like kind of two circles and then like a little loop. The loop constantly has a little bit of a, you know, which way do you go? Being loving, making mistakes doesn't mean you're just because you're coming from being loving doesn't mean you're going to actually mm-hmm. perfectly, skillfully, masterfully, artfully express that relationship into reality moment to moment. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I would suggest very unlikely that it will. Uh, okay, so then you'll notice that you actually have, in this case, quite inadvertently. Um, injected something into reality that's creating ripples, creating Mm -hmm. little jiggity-jaggities. Oh, now what? You know, can you now take being loving into your interior and, you know, heal the felt sense of that in the interior, which is to say to stay whole, to not further separate, come back in and just, you know, and allow the the natural settling that, that is part of reality to allow that ripple to settle again. Or do you find yourself forked back over to the doing the simulation side because you've now been pulled away from your own groundedness by the awareness of your own flaw um, and now sort of start to scramble <laughs> to try to try to fix it? It's such a funny, from my perspective, my experience, 
sort of an, it's an omnipresent with the very particular meaning of that word, you know, down to the level of uh, you know, timelessness. It has nothing to do with the discrete moments of time. It's actually the, in, in, as the part of being that is infinite and is the kind of the basis of choice. Each choice is, is grounded in that directionality, in that distinction. And healthy, meaning um, it's the, the, the giant training ground that life seems to be, of learning how to actually grow capacity to extend. It's funny, before we started recording, you gave some stories about your, uh, uh, how would I say this, sort of uh, surprisingly not death instinct motivated extreme sports attractions. Mm-hmm. And you know, as you know, uh, to do any of the th- those kinds of things like skiing and steep slopes backwards and leaping and whatnot uh, requires practice. Uh, mm-hmm. And also uh, to have learned how to do so artfully and to you know, land it does something. There's something about reality that says yes. In fact, in many ways, hooray <laughs> when that happens. Um, and so that's the beauty, right? That's the thing is learning how to actually realize that we're all learning that we're not yet masterful in any given moment and that the error, the mistake, the break, we're all kind of like together, uh, the child and the parent are together and saying, hmm, okay, now we have an opportunity to learn how to become more masterful and then you know, be able to say yes to the mistake, which of course is part of the bringing it back into wholeness and then an increase in capacity to express more and more artfully um, into life. That makes a lot of sense to me. And the notion that all of your energetic fingerprints will coat and cover everything you ever touch and interact with is um, is a, a powerful notion and something that is best kept in the forefront of your mind, especially as you deal with imprintable as imprintable of humans as children are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And these days as a human nature, we, for a long time, were able to get away with not having that level of care, but now we can't, you know, our, our power as humans, particularly as a human family is going to be, it is leaving big marks, right? Huge scars in nature Mm. and the same level of care now is requisite. Mm. That in the past, I guess what I hear there is in the past, just a single person didn't have as much power to impact nature. So they didn't have to care as much. And now as our power to affect the world around us and the natural systems has grown so much, a much higher level of care is demanded in our regard for how, or I guess needs to be instilled in the next. Yeah. So let's take a a practice of um, like very precise languaging because the the details here matter. Mm Mm-hmm. 
what I would say is in the past, and by the way, always, so back to the notion of omnipresent, always, uh, that level of care has always been Pono. Mm -hmm. the relationship with the sacred is always the relationship with the sacred. In the past, nature's capacity to heal was such that you could get away with, mm -hmm. and I don't mean that in a positive sense. Mm -hmm. You could get away with the not, with the, with the profane, and you could get away with the profane. There was a space where the profane could happen and nature would take it. Almost like, you know, mom and kid, mm -hmm. two-year-old kid can get away with a lot because mom can hold and she mm -hmm. won't be traumatized by kids tantrum. That's actually the, I think exactly the right metaphor. And now there's a shift. We can't get away with, we have to become grown-ups. We have to take responsibility for ourselves and have that sacred relationship, which has always been the one that has been proper, Pono. Um, but now it's requisite. Now mm -hmm. there is a, a point at which um, if we do not take our responsibility, then the story ends. I've, in the last couple of years, I feel like my soul has gotten louder. Mm. Mm. It's, it's getting louder. And these little bifurcations it's like I guess the connection I'm making here is like is our collective soul getting louder? Whew. That's a wonderful way of expressing it, by the way. Thank you. Wonderful way of expressing it. Um, because I haven't listened for a long time. Mm -hmm. I haven't always listened, you know? And in the past, it seems like my soul just took it. I was like, it's all right. You'll do it some other time. And now my soul is like, got me like by the neck. <laughs> it's a certain probability to it, isn't it? <laughs> It certainly is. And uh, what I would say to that is something like, hold on, let's just meet. So what does this mean? This notion of louder? It's like, uh, like an earthquake. And what I mean is that there's an indistinctness to its origin. You know, when you feel the low sonic hum, the thrum mm -hmm. of an earthquake, um, it's sort of everywhere all at once. Mm -hmm. It's disorienting because you can't place it. And there's a desire to place. Mm -hmm. Where is this coming from? Right? What is that? How do I run away from this? And, and, the, you know, and, and an earthquake actually is a very interesting, it's a, it's a pretty good metaphor because for quite some time, it may not be loud in an obvious sense. Mm -hmm. It's not like you, you, your ears can describe the, the sound in the same way that say a you know jackhammer is loud. Mm. 
but because it's everywhere and the intensity is felt like the energy of it is clearly something that your body isn't even familiar with. You know, it makes the, the, the blowing by of a garbage truck clearly minuscule. So mm-hmm. you're, you're sensing can sense the power of it. So mm-hmm. it's omnipresent and incredibly powerful and you can sense it. You have a capacity to perceive it. So if, if that metaphor is uh, landing, that's is very much my feeling as well. And it's, oh, okay, there's something. That something is strong, it's everywhere, or in a sense that is not you know, localized in space-time. Um, and it's, and it's uh, powerful and growing. Mm-hmm. And, then, and then the invitation, how does this work? Hmm. Hmm. Okay, so it's uh God. All right, okay, try this. This is crazy. Try this one. So I imagine you have a uh almost like a petri dish. And you've got a uh like a radio and it's broadcasting in a particular frequency. Okay. And there's something about the, the energy that is broadcast on the electromagnetic signal that has an influence over the crystallization probability in the Petri dish. So that as the crystal crystallizes, it, uh, that, that aspect, that, that crystallization that is most resonant with the frequency of the broadcast signal has a higher probability of be, being the one, right? That's how the crystal crystallizes. And that therefore creates a increase of the amount of energy that is perceived, which increases the mm, degree of crystallization in that particular gradient until effectively the visual image I have is of like this Petri dish coalescing, beginning to crystallize in a sort of a fractal or like snake skin kind of a look. And then it begins to come up and there's almost like a Eiffel Tower sort of structure. Mm-hmm. But now what's happening is that it's crystallizing along the gradient of maximal attunement to the electromagnetic magnetic frequency. So for some significant period of time, so at the end, what I have is I have a, a, a crystal radio set that is able to actually be a, an antenna tuned to the broadcaster, but it evolved to that point. At the end, I can hear the music. And the music is now distinct as music. But for a long time, I couldn't hear the music, but the system had a, a capacity to perceive and orient towards a, a directionality of manifestation of, in this case, crystallization in a particular configuration. And as it moved in that direction, you know, more like this, there was an increase in the, um, what's the term? It's really interesting. So it's actually the actualization of potential. And so the energy broadcast by the, by the, the broadcast by the radio was always the same. So the potential was always, let's call it 10. But the actualization of it is, is, is gated by the attunement, probably other characteristics too, but attunement of the receiver. Mm-hmm. So you're actualizing 0.1 out of 10. But by actualizing 0.1 out of 10, the, the embodiment of the antenna is now more. 
So now the attunement has the capacity to get to point two. Mm-hmm. And so it becomes an increasing, probably by the way, exponential. You probably have an exponential on that. And then what I did is my in my mind, I saw it go forward in time and backwards in time. So. <laughs> it's like the, um, the earthquake that is this signal that is not perceptible by everyone all the time and also not super acute. This is our collective soul or the, the right relationship to reality in any given moment. The potential of that is this radio signal. And then consciousness and right action is the growing of the crystals that as it becomes more and more sophisticated can tune into more accurately the signal itself so that it can grow itself to become more and more sensitive again. Yeah. Yeah. It's the, um, you know, for, for us in this moment in time, it's simultaneously the moving away that the, the notion of ego mind is a perfectly good name for it. That machinery of choice-making that we have adopted as a, as a thing that guides our, or structures our choices. Mm-hmm. So a movement away from that and then, then a construction of an increasing competence and capacity that is a very different basis of choice making. Mm-hmm. And we can be, you know, the, the examples are, are many, many, you know, the example of, of playing music as a, or dancing as a classic one, but of course, skiing, same thing. And if you just think about it very practically, um, one does not ski by means of ego, <laughs> right? There's no sort of like, narrative in your head of left, right, left. Okay. Lean. There's actually a, a felt mm, like an elegance of just noticing what it, what the constant feeling in this very rich, hyper complex, um, multi-quality, like this extraordinary quality that can nonetheless be felt as a singular wholeness of moving into the rightness, right? Mm-hmm. Just a more and more capable of being in that pocket of rightness. And as the complexity of the mountain starts to fly by, you're finding yourself flowing through it. Mm-hmm. You become so attuned to the sensitivity and the sensibility of the rightness in relationship to this context mm-hmm. that you are masterful. That's the thing. And just generalize mm-hmm. that across all of life. Mm-hmm. I love that. And I feel like for me, the analogy of skiing is almost, I experienced that as like almost binary. It's like crash or land. Mm-hmm. And within land, there's like, yeah, there's some scale of like totally fucking stomped it or like held it together. But after skiing, we had a couple of wet winters when I was, you know, when, you know, eight years ago or something, I learned a high line, which is slack lining really high off the ground. You familiar with slacklining? Like a tight wire that's not tight. Yeah, it's like the rope that the hippies put between the trees in the park. Got it. Okay. But like we've done the world record, you know, like imagine a two kilometer long slack line. Wow. Um, and so there's this other gradation of like what is right action, or it's almost like I make the analogy that dancing is amazing because you can do whatever you want 
But slacklining is amazing because you have to do a very specific thing. Mm-hmm. And there's like, like there's a number of different ways to do it, but like your balance is your balance. Like the, the reality is fixed. Like your center of gravity has to stay on the rope. Like that's it. Mm-hmm. And then, by the way, just to make the, so take that frame you just put mm-hmm. and tell that story to a one-year-old who's learning how to walk. Mm-hmm. And she'll say, oh, no, walking is slacklining, brother. You're just really good at it. Mm-hmm. It is. It is. Yeah. Balance. Balance is like the relationship between your center of gravity and gravity itself. Mm-hmm. And this crazy machinery that has all these pulleys and levers and tensors and yes. sensors. Like, whoa, yes. wow, this is amazing. And then, you know, my guess is that you're slacklining. You can do more stuff while slacklining than I can. Yeah. And the me that can do it is not the me that can sit here and talk about it. Ah, okay. Nice. Because I cannot say left knee, MCL, engage, right hand up, swing. No, my that's like monkey me. And I've like, adult me has facilitated monkey me enough time on the slack line to develop this mastery that this like, that like my hands just do what my hands do and my feet just do what my feet do. There is some, especially like on two kilometers, you know, it's like a two hour walk across this damn thing. So there Mm -hmm. is this cognitive, like I do like the adult part of me is there too. And it's like, slow down, speed up, rest, like, like don't get too tied up in it. You know, like there's the pride, like the adult me can like see what's happening, but it's like the balance part is mostly the monkey me. Of course. Which is a really beautiful thing. But there's even, there's, I, I love this, that I, and I've experienced it like this, these sports. I started skiing when I was eight. I started slacklining when I was 20. I started slacklining when I was 16, but I started highlining, which really made the whole thing real because there was so much risk and fear and consequence. I started that eight years ago or 10 years ago. And then I learned to paraglide and paragliding for me is the metaphor of like the relationship to reality that you can't really see. You can't see it. So are you familiar with paragliding? Have you been to La Jolla and seen there at Torrey Um, Pines? Yes. I've actually been on uh, twice. We've been on ta- tandems. Yeah, tandem, yeah. There at Torrey Pines? No, in uh, Maui, actually. Oh, really? Beautiful, by the way. Totally worth it. Totally, yeah. My best friend who I've traveled around the world paragliding with has lived in Maui for the last 11 years. I've paraglided there a bunch. But I've started in the last three years to race my paraglider. And so I want to uh, paint this picture for you of what, uh, paragliding racing is and how it is a incredible metaphor for collective intelligence. Mm. And also I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, like this relationship between competition and collaboration that I see in paraglide racing. So the sun heats the surface of the earth and the heat rises like a hot air balloon, but instead of it being contained, it's a column of rising air. Sometimes it's a bubble. Sometimes it's a column. 
we can launch our paragliders off of a mountain and we fly into these bubbles or columns and we turn circles and it takes us up. Sometimes these columns can take us up as much as 2,000 feet a minute in the strongest case and can take us to 20,000 feet. Mm. When you get to the top of this climb, you fly out of it and you go downwind and you glide and you glide and you glide. And our gliders get something on the order of 10 to one. And with a nice tailwind, we're really making ground and you fly and you try to find the next one. Mm. Sometimes there's clouds in the sky, which indicate a thermal, right? Cause a cumulus cloud is created by a thermal taking moisture up until it cools to dew point. That's why those nice puffy clouds have a flat bottom. But sometimes the sky is blue. And so we look at the ground and we imagine, okay, what is the situation on the ground that would source a thermal as well as trigger the thermal? And when it triggered from there, what would the wind do to it and where would it take it? So I can guess where this is. As we learn cross-country paragliding, one of the biggest mistakes and the thing that I found myself dealing with for so long was I would project my own knowledge onto the situation or my own assessment onto it, as opposed to now I find myself as an expert, I oh, you know, probably have almost 2,000 flight hours doing this. My greatest gift or my greatest capacity is not my knowledge, it is my sensitivity. Mm-hmm. It is just my power to observe. And just when I'm going up, I turn and I don't think too much about it. And I just, uh, I, I've grown much more sensitive. So in a paragliding race, 120 of us launch off the mountain and we all are in this column together. And it's like a sailboat race. It's like we go around these buoys, mm-hmm. but the buoys are marked as GPS coordinates in our instrument. So there's a couple of things that are just powerfully incredible about racing paragliders. And the first is that we have this shared experience that is made up, completely and totally made up. You know, like there is no gun that goes off to mark the start. Like we've just all agreed upon it and we put it in our flight instruments. And so the, the points are imaginary, the columns are imaginary, but we're all doing this together. So that's one thing that's amazing. But the part that's really salient about collective intelligence is that we call it gaggle flying. So mm. like a cloud can be an indication of where there is a thermal, so can a bird, so can dust, so can... You know, a dust devil can pick up weeds and dirt and shit, and it'll take it thousands of feet into the air. It Mm -hmm. picks up trash. Sometimes we see trash thousands of feet off the ground because the atmosphere has picked it up and taken it up there, which is always humiliating when you get outclimbed by a plastic bag, but um, it happens. So we have these like indicators, but the best indicator always is another paraglider because even a bird, you can see a bird climbing and it'll mark lift but you never quite know what the bird's intention is. Mm-hmm. But when you're on a race course, you know that all of the paragliders are trying to get as high as they can, as fast as they can and go as far as they can. Right? So the gaggle we start referring to as the brain because how we use the, the input that we get from seeing how other people 
are either going up or down or out, how fast they're going. This becomes the most powerful input in paragliding. And it allows the brain to fly so much faster than any individual can. Mm -hmm. The best pilots in the world cannot beat the decent brain by themselves. The brain is just faster. So the race becomes keep up with the lead gaggle and do your part to fly as fast as you can personally but also to increase the speed of the brain, which looks like, technically, it looks like don't fucking cut people off. Don't fly with machismo in the gaggle. Don't fuck up the gaggle. You know, like stay in line, fly efficiently, work as a team. But then there's moments where like, when we're all doing circles and we're kind of just following each other, that someone will just like, push out into the wind a little bit and they'll still they'll get into just a little bit stronger of climb and then the entire gaggle will move over to that piece of climb that's stronger Mm -hmm. so there is this like stay in line but also like reach out like what's possible like keep keep probing keep poking and then at the end of the day when we all have the right enough altitude we're all full speed drag race to the finish line so there is this amazing collaboration that we're doing and it's I guess there's some things that I in particular that I think are interesting that you might think are interesting and one is that while we're doing this, there's so many fucking things. Like there's the wind, there's the climbs, there's the, just like, there's so many factors. It's like stimulation overload all the time. And what you end up putting 90% of your attention on is everyone else. And it seems like that in human life as well. Hmm. Like there is Pono, but we put 90% of our attention on what everyone else is doing. Which the analogy kind of falls apart because (laughs) that analogy falls apart because it's so hard to, it's so hard to go alone on the invisible thing. Like you're, you're not really contributing to the betterment, to the enrichment of the whole. If you're just, I don't know, like sitting in an ashram being no one for your whole life. I don't know. I don't know what the analogy there is, but. Well, the one that comes to my mind that I think makes it a, a little bit like hmm, simpler to do the comparison is actually the indigenous. And so you know, to think about it from the point of view of there being a, a realness to the embodiment of the whole in the indigenous context. It is only livingness as a group of homo sapiens in a particular bioregion is I think very much point by point a mapping to the story you were just telling. The brain and the tribe. 
And there's something about, you know, somebody to go off, to, to find a way that we are actually exiting the slipstream. You know, there's like a hyperdimensional slipstream is what you're talking about, right? There's an envelope of, um, I'm also doing a little bit of the Peloton because it's a simpler uh-huh. model. There's something about there being a um, high dimensional pocket of effective choice in the context of, of paragliding that is defined uh, by this space of the gaggle. Uh, mm-hmm. So something about being in close contact for vacu language, right? Con- uh, continuity of contact with the gaggle mm-hmm. is how to be inside the peloton, how to be inside the high dimensional slipstream of optimality. Losing continuity of contact with the gaggle um, is such a radical shift in your capacity to perceive and make right choices that it is self-extinguishing as a behavior. Same thing with indigenous person, right? Continuity of contact with your, with your people, with your group, which is to say with you is so much more affordant to effective choice, mm. to both the perception and actual well-being that to lose that continuity of contact, which is to say to somehow defect against, right? To mm-hmm. mm, mm, separate from, that it just is self-extinguishing. It just evaporates. You, know, you come out, you know, if you come out of it, the, the thing, the only thing to do is to ah, come back in. <laughs> Whoa, lost it somehow, right? Maybe you, know, you can imagine you're kind of paragliding and then you have a something reminds you of like a fight you have with your wife and your mind suddenly comes to the surface and you're, ah, you're out. Mm-hmm. Well, you're, you're basically, you just lost the race for sure. Or you, you recognize that you're out of continuity of contact with the gaggle and you learn how to come back into that space. And then, you know, whatever happens, right? Who knows? Maybe, maybe something happens. So you kind of come back into the spot. Okay. So, um, uh, Brett Weinstein really f- was the first person I think who brought to my awareness the notion that of all organisms, humans are the animal whose niche is niche transition. Mm. And that's what you're describing. You're describing the fact that there's something ambient to our, our kind of animal, our kind of being that has this capacity to form a gaggle, has a capacity Mm -hmm. to feel so fundamentally the feeling of connectedness to the gaggle. I don't mean like awareness, but feeling Mm -hmm. and be able to guide infinitesimal, rapid, diffuse, subtle choices in body, mind, attention, changes of state of neurology, hormones, all this, right? This whole thing becomes entrained to the lived reality that connection to the gaggle is a harmonic harmonic frequency that's able to pull a, such a higher level of signal that it is the thing to do. Mm-hmm. And this gaggle, as you say, has a qualitatively superior capacity to perceive, to orient, mm-hmm. uh, and then to make effective choices in the context of a particular super complex con- context. Yeah? So you're actually operating in a very beautiful space uh, rapid, you know, it happens, I don't know how long a race takes, but certainly not generations, uh, which would be a fun extension of the metaphor. Um, a very rapid example 
of what it what is like when Homo sapiens moves through niche. You know, if you move, you can imagine like a nomadic group moving across the uh, you know the, the North Indian highlands and sliding down into sort of central India, which is a very different environment. And the whole like and, and the beauty is like these days we have uh, what you call it knowledge, and we have knowledge that tends to get in the way, but if you think like, what does it become as a little child? You know, the metaphor of a, a kid who doesn't really have a notion of language, they're just communicating. Um, it's not obvious that the, the relationship between say facial expression or hand gesture and tone of voice and distinct sound and semantic object, it's not obvious what part of that is language, mm -hmm. particularly if you're not, if you don't read, you know, you've got like a three-year-old who doesn't read I say cat, right? In your mind, you're parsing out the sound cat that models to you probably the, the C-A-T in written as well as you know a whole semantic object. But my three-year-old is pulling out the whole thing, right? My, the glasses I'm wearing, the shade of the light. Like mm -hmm. there's nothing that's irrelevant. Who fucking knows, right? You just pull the whole thing, cat. Mm -hmm. Whoa, geez, that's a gigantic universe of reality that just fluxed into my experiential manifold. Mm -hmm. How do I parse out the relevant aspects of that mm -hmm. that can guide my choices effectively? So think about that when you drop in as a, as a human group, you mm -hmm. drop into a new niche, right? What is it? What's, what are the meaningful signals? What is meaningful mm -hmm. in this context? Is it the, the, the feeling of the, the smell of the air that tells me that a storm is about to come? Is it the sound of the mm -hmm. movement in the grass that tells me that the low, the small animals and bugs are moving? Mm -hmm. You know, is it, is it the, the way that my foot sinks into the sand that tells me that it's been a long time before it's last rained, right? The, the, the complexity of the perceptual environment is extraordinary, mm -hmm. right? And by the way, the uh, survival is on the throw the dice. Mm -hmm. Get it wrong a little bit and you are definitely going to feel it and you quite likely won't make it. So in connection to that, to that gaggle connection to that embodied collective intelligence that evolution selected for over millions and millions of years is sine qua non. Now, if you are not connected to that gaggle, your likelihood of survival is zero. You're mm -hmm. done. And you're certainly not going to have anything beyond that. Obviously, right. It takes at least two to tango. Um, I noticed this in a very sort of simple first-person context when uh, my wife and my little one and I went on this RV trip uh, in the fall of last year. So we got an RV and we drove to Vermont from San Diego and back, which was a lot of driving. And we actually were driving like three hours a day and we'd sometimes stay for like two, maybe three days and then keep going, but not a long time anywhere. And by the way, my daughter was 18 months when we began. So... Um, one of the things that we noticed was like first a little bit of confusion as to why certain behaviors were coming up. You know, we would land in a particular place a couple of times, maybe five or six times, she would find a particular person, almost always a woman of a particular age, like 20s to 30s, sometimes a little older, but usually in that range. She would get that person's name. She would know that person's name. And first thing, wakes up, boop, where's Becca? Where's Becca? Where's Becca? And, you know, the first two or three times, it's like, oh, she really likes Becca. That's neat. But the third time, like, whoa, hold on. And then just came to me all at once. It's like, oh, wait a minute. I'm experiencing this as an adult. She's experiencing it as a hominid. And from the point of view of Homo sapiens, a family of two adults and one child 
traveling through many different contexts without connection to a whole tribe is fucked. Like, what the <laughs> hell went wrong? Like, wow, we are seriously fucked. Like, oh my God, what happened? Like her system is just like, whoa. And so any opportunity to sink into a I tribe, yeah. yeah, I need an aunt. I, I need a grandma. Like, where, where is this? I need a tribe. What's happening here? Right. And so her system is just running at super high rate, looking for a way to establish the intrinsics of the gaggle. My, her body was like, where's my gaggle? Like without my gaggle, I am lost. Mm-hmm. So it was a powerful realization and learning of, okay, yeah, that is deep code. Like from a homo sapiens perspective, that's fundamental. That is deep By the way, this gives you a lot of clues on what any effective collective intelligence must look like. You know, and you're sort of from the future example of where you're at right now, you know, noticing that um, maybe you don't have enough aunts, maybe you don't have enough grandmas. Sounds like you got a pretty good number of kids. Maybe some babies would be good, little ones, like instant, like infants. And where's the, where's the grandpa? Like, what are the, what are the pieces of the human family that your your system is attuned, is looking for, and is it's, it's listening for a particular kind of signal? And if if somebody's not showing up on that frequency, on that channel. You're like, ah, something's off. And maybe you're trying to find it in somebody else. Like, okay, for now, you're only 27, but you're going to be playing the grandpa role because you got more of a grandpa energy than anybody else. But we need that. Mm -hmm. And that's a frequency that our system is just tuned to. If we don't have the full spectrum, then something's missing. Mm -hmm. And, hmm, okay, was there, I think there was one more thing. By the way, thank you for the, that frame. I've never, never heard that story before. Never even thought about the notion before. I mean, I've seen paragliders, but that notion of racing and the, the ability to kind of empathize, be empathically in yourself as perceiving and noticing. Yeah, I've experienced uh, dust devils and trash and you know, I, can, I, I can feel when the wind is moving, but now it's a vastly more rich landscape. Mm-hmm. It has a vertical component. We always think of wind as horizontal, but the wind actually has a deeply vo- vertical component. Deeply vertical, fundamentally, even more fundamentally. The horizontality is an artifact of its <laughs> Beautifully said. I just have to open a door. Give me one second. Yeah. yeah. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, this, I, I think I lost some of the, the nuance and detail of the, of the moment that you created, but the, the step that comes for me next is something like a big part of the way that I've really been feeling into the story of Sivium is the tone of, you can say it two different ways and both are important, the, the new indigenous and the, the second way is to recognize the the intrinsic indigenous, and those are, so let me sort of distinguish them. So, so the new indigenous is a, a, both a recovery, but also the recognition of an intrinsic novelty or growth. So the original indigenous, the old indigenous, has um, at least two characteristics that are really not going to be present in the new. One is lineage, uh, monolineage. You are in fact actually genetically related to effectively everybody in your group. You are not just cousins, metaphorically, you're cousins. 
in the original indigenous. Not everybody, but for the most part. Um, and you also have a very long continuity of monoculture. Your, your grandmother's grandmother's grandmother had the same cultural envelope that you have and that your great great grandchildren will have. Like, just we all speak the same language, we all have the same stories, we all, you know, it's just a massive, and everybody you know, and more than everybody you meet will be of that same monoculture. So, there's a lot of, um, almost physicality that the, the the language is as part of the base state of reality as the physical environment the rain and the and the dust um, now of course i'm 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 being a little bit hyperbolic you you meet other people you know if you if you're if you're hawaiian you're aware of the fact that there are tahitians and samoans and they are cousins both physically but also culturally and you notice there's a real difference and samoan have a different language same language and different language. Same meaning, slightly different way of saying it, which is actually a very nice shift in consciousness. But old indigenous has that as a much stronger. Any possible new indigenous isn't going to have that. We're way beyond that. Like our the notion of um, multicultural is not an aspiration. It is a simple intrinsic of the world that we live in. You know, we don't even have like little tiny bits of cultural continuity. Everything is a giant fragmented, mm. we've taken a mirror, we've turned it into sand, not even like shards. Okay, that's that. Okay, so now we're gonna figure out how to build a new indigenous on the basis of that, on the basis of how do we simultaneously form a gaggle where each distinct grain of sand is operating with very, very different cultural assumptions and yet there's something about that that now affords a vastly larger space of perspective. And so this is, a, again, this, this example of like the two directions. The, the entropy, the challenge of endeavoring to actually form a gaggle in the context of intrinsic multicultural. And here I don't mean like simple multicultural, like Hispanic and, uh, and Asian. I mean like the shattered developmental environment that's in every single person. Um, so vastly huge, very high entropy. If I actually want to sort of form a monoculture between the two of us, it's a lot of work for us to actually come to a place where we have such a, enough of a shared context. And among a group of 100 people, effectively impossible. The combinatorial explosion of the uh, kind of complexity of the inferent, the differential of cultural assumptions is enormous. There's essentially no way in changing context. Hmm. And so there'll be no going back to a higher metaculture, a mono metaculture for any given group. There's a whole new space that opens up that is transcendent to the particulars and has the capacity, therefore, to operate in a transcendent space using the particulars of the cultural perception of each individual in much the same way that you were describing. And there's something about you're paying attention. You're not really thinking about what they are saying in any communicative sense. Right? You're sort of reading it at a very fundamental level, not having to do with gated through your knowledge, but rather in a very deep sensing and able to then stay in contact. And so there's a whole story about that. This is when I say the word coherence, I'm referring, that's what I mean when I describe that. And the same thing, by the way, at the genetic level, which is the same notion but um, in terms of like 
physiologically at a body level. Genetic and epigenetic differentiation means distinct actual physio and epigenetic responses to environmental conditions. It's just, you know, it's just what's happening. I eat a tomato and my body will process it differently than my wife's body. Um, and of course, that's, all, that's true for people who are genetically related, but it's really true for people who are genetically very distant. So you've got two underlying bases of the new indigenous that have as an intrinsic, very big distinction, right? embodied diversity at a very high level, which implies, by the way, an impossibility of integration using um, old fashioned techniques, either old indigenous or what I would call game A techniques. And so the challenge in game B is the higher tone of how do you actually form coherence across this much higher diversity. If you can, mm. you get a vastly larger space, gaggle space, then you use that. Um, but it's very non-trivial. And there's a whole bunch of stuff that has to be learned, just like learning how to paraglide in the very first place, just mm -hmm. simply to do it or, or just to, to ski. And I think the you either land or you don't is a pretty good um, metaphor there. Mm -hmm. so that's the, the kind of the new. And then there's the intrinsic. And the intrinsic is also quite nice, which is to say that when we say the word indigenous, what we mean is something like you come from a place. You're sort of native to a place. You were born. Your physical developmental environment, the stuff when you're just wide open, just reading everything without any particular distinction and learning how to, how to learn as a fundamental is associated with the place. So to be indigenous Hawaiian is to be born in Hawaii mm -hmm. and to grow up in the context of Hawaii. Um, and in some sense, many generations. But we're all indigenous and we're all indigenous to earth. We're all indigenous to this world. And we're all indigenous to a world that happens to also include human agency, which is an interesting complexity. And that's what I say. That's the tone of what our indigenous is learning how to deal with. It's learning how to deal with right relationship with the whole of the earth and learning how to deal with right relationship with humanity coming into being a piece of that story that is utterly like intrinsic to the, to the experience. Technology, for example. We are indigenous to technology. Um, it's part of our natural developmental environment. And mm. so those two tones, like that notion of the new indigenous in the intrinsic, but at this, in this different way of, or this different context, those are like the, the yin and the yang, the two sides of the, of the story and the learning how, which of course now implies also a consciousness of it. And we're no longer simply waking up into a context that holds us naturally and develops us using you know, the, the old fashioned approach of millions of years of evolution and you know, generations and generations of culture. Now we're operating in a space where the consciousness of this reality is part of the thing. Oh, okay. Consciousness, guess what? You're in the story. This is my understanding now of the phrase when people say conscious evolution. It's sort of triadically the consciousness of the fact of evolution itself. So we are no longer simply evolving. We are conscious of that fact. Mm. Um, we are therefore also now intrinsically taking more and more conscious choice in the nature and content of evolution. And as a, as a consequence of that, one of the outputs of that is an actual evolution of consciousness. So all three of those are part of that construct. Um, 
That's all I have to say about that. I think, I guess, to say it back and how I'm kind of hearing it is the indigenous is almost the, like you said, the place that you're from. And that genetic and cultural. And then the intrinsic. And what? And developmental. Yeah. And then the intrinsic is almost the earth that that's, that place is on. It's the container around all of that. Mm. No. What I'm saying is the place now is the whole earth. It used to be mm. that the place was a very particular, mostly, in fact, a bioregion. Mm-hmm. Um, or maybe some complex of bioregions linked together in some mm-hmm. meta, mm-hmm. hydro or, or climactic, or sometimes biologic structure. Now it's the whole world. It's the whole of Earth. Mm-hmm. And by the way, possibly the whole of Saul. I don't really know <laughs> exactly how far out it goes in this next sort of big space. But certainly that. It's just say, hey, here we are. We are. We are all indigenous to the earth um, and humanity was born. Like we, we come from earth for mm-hmm. sure. This is the, this is the place. And unlike other animals, our, our deepest characteristic is niche transition. Our deepest mm-hmm. characteristic is in fact to eventually be of the whole of earth mm-hmm. as mm-hmm. opposed to always being locked into a particular niche. It's mm-hmm. intrinsic to us mm-hmm. to be that which covers the whole, the whole of earth. And then ultimately to then take indigenous responsibility for the whole of earth mm-hmm. as a whole. And in its particulars, of course. Noticing that there's a lot of, um, you can kind of pluck at the tones of different things that came up in the conversation, mm-hmm. you know, like um, conscious communication mm-hmm. and the, the, the recognition that language is in many ways the first technology mm-hmm. and is the root of all possible technology. And if you want to take responsibility for technology, first you take responsibility for language. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I would say that's a um, the fundamental of this mm-hmm. movement, this growth, this maturity. Mm-hmm. And even stronger in that same story, that same conscious communication context, that this flip between the, the simulation, which only serves to polish the ego even more, mm-hmm. and the grounding, which then is able to be supported by a structure of language mm-hmm. is i would say probably the first that's the, the zeroth law if you want to use that metaphor the the first the foundation is the the bifurcation of embodiment versus simulated thinking yeah 
and then to, to always learn how to come from continuity of contact with the whole first and mm. notice to what degree are you bringing noise, ripples, trauma into the whole and how do you take responsibility for yourself so that you are bringing only more wholeness into the whole. Mm. Okay. Um, and then all the artifacts, all the tools are now tools that support that, but your pre-tool, you know, pre-cognitive, your pre-knowledge mm, learningness, the monkey, the slack line uh -huh. is first. Are you standing? Are you connected? Are you balanced? Mm -hmm. Is your system feeling continuity of contact with itself and with life? And are you now in a place where you can come into this next step to begin to grow with integrity? Mm -hmm. like well, well-structured wall has integrity. It's not going to collapse under more weight. Okay, go. I, in my own life, I think that most of it has come backwards to what you're saying now. It's basically my... I guess I still hope that I'm embodied and that I'm striving for that. But I think the vast majority of my biggest lessons have come almost as a tool first. Like I was as an adolescent, very clever and very funny and very fast and use that to do enormous harm, mm -hmm. enormous harm, and have had to learn tools. Like, for instance, as I picked up NVC, nonviolent communication, as I picked that tool up, it basically showed me the wake that I had made with all the other tools. Mm. Mm -hmm. And so I guess I'm almost pushing back a little bit that the embodiment has to come first because it seems like my crystals have to align tall enough to be able to receive the signal that embodiment is even a thing that I should be looking towards at all when I think I've been on a path of doing no harm or doing less harm or the words that actually came to my mind were shutting the fuck up. Mm. Right? Like we all, we all know those people who like have no philosophies and they just like walk the thing. Mm -hmm. Right? And they, they don't use NVC. And sometimes they're brash and sometimes they're the thing, but they're just like, they're just, they just, they do it. They don't have philosophies. They just live it. They walk it. They're embodied. They're centered. And so I guess I've realized a number of times that I've gained a new skill or a realization 
by, it comes one of two ways. One is that I gain knowledge of how someone else is and it illuminates something about me. Or the opposite is that I gain some self-knowledge that illuminates and makes compassion externally more easy. Hmm. Nice. Right. And so sometimes it literally has come from my ego that I don't like how someone is and it rubs me the wrong way. And in time, that seed of irritation comes to like illuminate the part of me that is similar or exactly like that. Right. So I guess I kind of see that as like, that's like the tool. Whereas like the embodiment would be like a real, like gleaning self-knowledge that I would really integrate that would help me have compassion externally. But I, I see it can come from both ways here. It can come <laughs> from both ways. Well, let's see. So um... I guess that's to say like NVC can help me be to do less harm, which would take another step towards allowing myself to be embodied. It would show me things. It would show me the missing pieces of my own embodiment. Or... I could have some kind of embodiment that would just naturally manifest in a change in my communication. Mm, yes. Well, how do I say this? Let's see, I want to get right down to the very like NVC at the very, very most basic level. There's the degree to which your expression is a trained monkey dance manipulating the tool. And there's a degree to which your expression is coming from compassion, love, uh-huh, healing. Uh-huh. Very, very bottom. I mean the most basic. Yes. Um to the degree to which you have built a capacity to come from that place of compassion, the tool will support you in being able to do so skillfully and artfully. To the degree to which you're using the tool in a monkey dance, it can actually separate you uh -huh. from the very thing itself. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, I see that. I see how you could essentially virtue signal. Oh yes. To yourself more than anyone else. Yes. Aren't I being compassionate? Yeah. I'm speaking so nonviolently. Yeah. See my soft eyes. Yeah. I must be really, really virtuous. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Which gets tricky. It's a very tricky thing. So yes, these giant constellations of tools. And by the way, we can now add all of them. Meditation, yoga, breathing, praying, all of them. 
Mm-hmm. And they all have that, you know, that double blade, that edge. Mm-hmm. Uh, the yeah, headspace tracks your meditation hours. Now you have a quantifiable. I am more enlightened than anybody else. Uh-huh. I guess my question would be that as we develop as humans and to bring it back to children, do children not just virtue signal until they can develop the aptitude to embody the virtue itself? As an adult, I can choose what to monkey in hopes that maybe if I monkey the right things, that someday I will maybe actually have the virtue. Yeah, think about this. Think about the responsibility of parenting in nature in the context of child. So remember, the child is absorbing uh, a highly complex input. Okay. Then they're endeavoring to integrate that input in themselves with Mm -hmm. no particular awareness of what is relevant and what's not relevant. means always always not nothing but it's very complex all the signal all the noise then they're expressing certain aspects and expressing certain aspects those aspects come back out now what mirrors back oh you know you could use just a simple you know my my hand is moving in a direction holding a stylus learning how to draw a circle uh-huh right did circle show up yes or no it's a teaching context. Is there, uh-huh. did I embody the thing itself by virtue of expressing mm-hmm. the artifact into the world? Um, but they don't know. Like, I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, you may have already seen this with the kids that are in your environment, but um, my little one, um, gosh, I guess maybe a year ago, um, told a joke. And she told a joke like this. She goes, Dada likes chocolate. <laughs> right? For her, that whole thing, you know, what is a joke? A joke is somebody says something and then people laugh. Uh-huh. Right? The notion of funny, I don't know what the hell does that mean? All I know is I perceive there's an expression of something and then people laugh. And here's the best part, right? Of course, when she did that, everybody laughed. Of course. So now she has reinforcement. Uh-huh. So she, she, she had some learning in herself, some insight of something that emerges as a thing, which by the way, she's also perceived as valuable, as virtue. Mm-hmm. Noticing there's a, there's a felt sense of people seem to value this notion of laugh together. Seem to, you know, there's a, you know, people who express in a way and other people laugh, there's more attention, there's more positivity, like that whole field mm-hmm. of, of how do I connect more closer to the gaggle? Okay, what's that all about? Like not, you know, cognitively, there's something happening, an expression, an insight, pop, it comes out, everybody laughs, whoa, okay. Now, what does a kid do? The kid repeats the expression again. Mm, okay, still laugh. Third time, less laugh. Fourth time, not funny anymore. Mm. Huh. Why is that? Interesting. The artifact, the virtue signal is not the thing. It's not okay. the thing. Begin to learn more. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there's this really powerful play back and forth between the, well, in, in Forrest Landers' language, it would be between the transcendent and the imminent, uh, and then ultimately the omniscient, which is to say the, the essence or the, the thing that is expressing itself, the expression, and then the artifact of that expression. And, uh, and so, yes, the child is constantly learning, but they're constantly learning all three. 
and the way that reality bounces back is part of their environment. Yeah. yeah. Which is why, by the way, by the way, for children, nature is fundamental. If you, if you don't have nature, you're going to have very hard time learning because nature does, has no positive feedback for virtue signaling. Uh-huh. It only has positive feedback for virtue. I guess in a word, I or I would say that like there's I would almost come in defense of spiritual narcissism. This idea that that spiritual to, narcissism. Keep, yeah. To to like brag about how much you've meditated, to take pictures of yourself in deep yoga poses, share them on social media to pursue these machinations of your ego mm, okay. that, as you've noted, aren't actually getting you onto Pono. They're not actually the thing. But my argument would be that Sometimes they're actually getting you closer than you were. They're actually getting you on your yoga mat. If your if your motivation to go to a vipassana retreat is egoic, great. Your ego is leading you to something that might, in time, unwind your ego. Well, let's we can go in there. So this is um. Can what's your what's your time frame here? Good, good, good call. I'm, Pretty close to end, maybe five to 10 minutes. Okay. I just, I need to close my front door because smoke is filling my house. I would love to wrap up. Give me 90 seconds. Okay. Okay. Bye. Okay. I, I, I would love to just give you my own anecdote of this okay. because this has happened in my life. And I have my own fears of abandonment that were developed in childhood that I now see as sweet wounds because they encouraged me or demanded me, I guess, however I want to look at it, to become a really good partner. Mm. Mm. And One of the things I've picked up because I don't want to be abandoned is that I can cook like crazy <laughs> because people don't leave the cook. No. People do not leave the cook. You'd be an idiot to leave the cook. So there are ways in which my ego has brought me to things that have genuinely made me a better part of the whole. And there have been times in my life and in relationships that I have found myself cooking out of a fear that it wasn't an embodied, it wasn't an embodied moment mm. that I found myself cooking out of a fear of abandonment.
there are much cringier examples I have, particularly in relationship and particularly in virtue signaling and particularly trying to follow Daniel Schmachtenberger and his model of relationships and having just a small strange insight into that as with who I have dated has led to virtue signaling that Mm. was catastrophic Mm -hmm. that I could only recognize that later as virtue signaling. But at the time it looked like my desire to cultivate virtue. So I've seen my own spiritual narcissism and I've seen it and, and not so much spiritual. I've seen my own ego, my own fears manifest some of the best parts of me that only later I have to go back and I have to prune off the fucking ego. I have to prune off the bullshit. I have to prune off the signal, the signaling. And with my consciousness, take the behavior that I have and actually align it with the embodiment like to integrate it into myself because I had that behavior before I had the integration, right? Like I could care for people in like a really deep sense to like be curious of their body type and the type of digestion that they have and their activity and, and curate a menu of the day that would be healthy and helpful for that day of that person. And I had that before, I say before, I'm like reluctant to say that I actually have the thing embodied, Mm -hmm. you know, (laughs) I'm sure sometimes I do, but I've had the behavior before I've had the embodiment on so many things. And I think it's led me, I've stumbled and bumble fucked my way towards behaviors that, you know, like I call these sweet wounds, you know, like my fear of abandonment has helped me develop myself into what I think is a really good partner and definitely have traits that can care for other people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So let's see, there's a few things, right? One is, um, um, it's the right place to start. So the path has the right movement. Well, actually, let's just start there. Your life is singular there's no going back to a previous version of yourself though you may shed pieces of yourself and and you enter back into a certain childlike place nonetheless those moments have passed Mm -hmm. now the question would be something like perhaps imagine if perhaps there was a slightly different version of that path that would have been available that had come from a slightly different more grounded place equivalent in or producing capacity, but producing maybe a slightly different capacity, more fully pono, more fully in alignment with your self-expression and with your relationship, your context in the world. It's hard to know. So I don't want to demoralize the virtues that have arisen, truly arisen as a consequence of the choices that you've made. Those are always 
they're real. There's no question, right? There will always be something true in any step. Any choice you make will always have some degree of, of true growth in it. The question, the challenge is how do we actually get that to be more and more and less mm -hmm. and less ripple? Right? So that's one direction. Uh, the, the many, many, many hours that I spent watching television as a kid produced capacities. Nonetheless, wasn't the most good use of my developmental time. Mm -hmm. So there you go. There's was some path, some alternative path that would have been healthier and more supportive of a more mm -hmm. holistic growth. Mm -hmm. So that when I die, I look back and would be able to say, ah, this was time not wasted as opposed to eh, mostly wasted, but there was good parts too. Mm -hmm. Other side. And this other side is the one that I want to really focus on. And this has to do with that, that well-polished ego. Because mm -hmm. you talked about it as you kind of grow in and then you prune away. Mm -hmm. But many of these things, you know, spiritual narcissism, the act of becoming skillful makes the act of pruning harder. That's the thing to look out for. To become a truly skillful spiritual narcissist meditator means that you've actually removed meditation's capacity to help you prune that mm -hmm. aspect because you've trained that piece of attachment, that piece of ego, precisely how to make meditation its tool. Mm. That's the tricky piece. And so there's a, there's a double move. There's, there's a, real, a real growth, like a real shedding of stuff that is happening in the context of, say for example, meditation. For sure, almost always actually, it's a pretty good, pretty good tool. And there's a, depending on how you enter into it, a training of, let's just say ego, just to make it a simple ex expression on how to make that its tool, which means that at a certain point, you, one cannot use meditation to grow. And in fact, more and more meditation will become a, in service to a increasingly complex, but also very subtle ego expression into the world. And that can be very challenging and dangerous because many others will not have the discernment to notice it because you've now evolved it to the point where it's, uh, you know, yeah, what do you call it? Antibiotic resistant bacteria. Mm. Very, very powerful, subtle, complex, rich, nuanced, learned ego expression. But at its base, it still is that one mm -hmm. same energy of fear of abandonment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, be careful. So the point is to be careful. Mm -hmm. The point is not to say, don't use tools. The key is to say the tool is the tool. Mm -hmm. The tool is never the thing. And that there's always a question at the center. And the more skillful one gets in using tools, be careful. There's all kinds of things. The one sitting next to you is training in those same tools and is going to be better at tools than you are. Always a little bit better at tools because his hands are for tools. The monkey, the tool using monkey, always better at tools than the self. So there's always that last choice, the last little bit, the trim tad at the bottom, which by the way, can be enormous. You, know, these, you, know, you can imagine a guru, like a deep guru, serious, like master of many, many basic fundamental spiritual tools. And therefore, the enormity of what's hidden behind that super well-polished ego is intense very powerful, intense um, 
I mean, they would say shadow that when it, as it comes out and infiltrates into the world, we'll leave that wake, but it'll leave mm. the wake in a very tricky way, very tricky. So this is just to say, be careful, mm-hmm. not, um, not do do. Identity is a piece here, the notion of identity. Identity, of course, is in some sense the the essence of ego in in relationship to self. So imagine in the context of cooking, you became a celebrity chef. Focus on celebrity or celebrity chef. So your skillfulness in cooking has become a way to achieve an enormous amount of success in society. You are... You're famous, you're rich, you have access, power. People want to be with you, want to give you things. Now it becomes very, very difficult to become non-attached to that. The pruning of that is bound to deep, deeply bound, powerful minds. Shall I give up being chef? Give up being celebrity chef? Think about how your mind will rationalize. Well, I'll give up being a celebrity chef, but I'll, I'll, still, I'll still, still cook for my family. What's happening? That identity is trying to find out how to continue to maintain its its domination and control over yourself through whatever means necessary. As the pressure of the the, uh, asymmetry between the simulation of relationality that comes through the identity structure of celebrity chef and the self noticing it's not getting any nurturing, no connection, that symmetry creates fragility. And so, oh, something's going to break. Okay, I'll give up being celebrity chef, but I'll still cook for my family. And then my point is not still cooking for your family is wrong. My point is, where's it coming from? Mm-hmm. What's, the, what's the thing and how is it showing up in your relationship between self and reality? There is, of course, very much a way to take all those skills which were developed. And by the way, I should mention, perhaps you should have been an architect and you went down the path of celebrity chef because you started with, well, cooking will keep people close to me. <laughs> um, but anyway, cooking is a good thing. So now you can have that. It's a skill that you can give from self, but the question is, is it coming from self or is it ultimately coming from identity? And how do you know? And how do you learn how to rebind and you know, make that connection, which is the journey. And we're talking about a big journey. I mean, your own journey as an individual and the journey of the human family is very symmetric. And we're mm-hmm. on a 10,000 year catastrophe, at least. Um, and the act of healing and learning how to you know, take all the stuff that we've learned, right? The catastrophe mm-hmm. has lots of potential positives. You know, we mm-hmm. can't take stewardship of the whole world until we have the capacity to take stewardship of the whole world. That means both from the external, from our capacity to do, you know, to perceive and act, but also from the interior, our capacity to take responsibility, mm-hmm. truly. All right, well. Big journey. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. So nice to meet you, yeah, thanks so much for spending some time i'd love to do this again sometime yeah yeah this was uh you know i'm not doing so many of these anymore um but this was nice and you uh, definitely gave me um, awareness of some aspects um that i have never had connection with before and felt very well from my point of view the way i perceive things first is beautiful so it felt very beautiful and then settled into good and are probably therefore true (laughs) Ha, 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 ha.
That's a nice reflection. I'm happy to hear that. All right, brother. Well, I hope uh, can you continue to survive in your, your journeys. <laughs> I like the fact that for you, the, the way that you've chosen to enter into this life, that the landing is like a very clean, clear. You did or you didn't. <laughs> it's binary. Yeah. <laughs> Crash or land. All right. Aloha. See you, Jordan. Thank you. Okay, you guys, I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. Jordan Hall, I think you can see how he's... Maybe you see now what I see. Um, after this recording, the next day, Jordan and my friend Greg Enriquez, Dr. Greg, had a recorded conversation where this conver- this paragliding thing and me came up in their conversation which just makes me smitten as a fucking kitten i gotta say super validating to be uh jamming with these kind of people and there's some other things that jordan and i in this call we uh i think we talked for some 35 or 40 minutes before we started recording so there's a number of things that i want to share with you that I think I'll just have to do in a monologue um so stay tuned for that and sorry for not recording but sometimes when I do these calls and I haven't met the person and I like to just like have a conversation for a while without recording um even though I'm very good at having conversations uh candidly and vulnerably there is still something that changes in me and the guest when we push record so um sometimes that happens so thank you so much consider leaving an itunes review i think that helps um share the show with your friends and please become a patron on patreon that's patreon.com slash airy in the air you can do it for as little as five dollars a month super helpful wrenches my life and makes this show go around until next time, my friends, we got more episodes coming out. I've got an awesome recording with Dr. Greg Enriquez. Daniel Kazanjian is back on the show. Awesome shit. I'm fired up. Hope you are too. Enjoy your life. Good luck. See you soon. Mm-hmm.